The story of Kent is the story of England. Our country first emerges into the light of written history during the period of the Roman occupation, but rather than chapter one, that is merely the prologue, setting the scene and introducing the major characters, like the first ten minutes of a Bond film. It was under the Romans that Germanic-speaking people first came to Britain, sometimes as mercenary, sometimes as raiders, making sporadic hit-and-runs, but also sometimes as mercenaries, deliberately settled by the Romans in a series of forts along the east coast to guard the country against their own barbaric kin. These forts were known collectively as the Litus Saxonicum, the Saxon shore, taking its name from one of those Germanic groups. In the late 4th and early 5th centuries, the Roman Empire was beset by a series of crises, and in 410, Britain was abandoned. A dearth of contemporary sources leaves us uncertain precisely what happened next, when and through whom. This is, shall we say, the title sequence of the film, all vague images and hints. And when the film proper begins, events have already moved on. By the time contemporary documentation reappears, in the late 6th and 7th centuries, much of Britain has been colonised by the Saxons. The gamekeepers have turned back into poachers and divided the island into their own kingdoms. The first of these was Kent. The only source from Britain written during the Saxon invasion, an early 6th century open letter to the kings of Britons, to the kings of the Britons by Gildas, is frustratingly elusive as to names and dates. So we must rely on the Venerable Bede's Ecclesiastical History of the English Nation, written in 730. According to Bede, the generic term Saxon really refers to three groups of people, the Saxons proper, the Angles, and the Jutes. The Saxons settled what became Essex, Sussex, and Wessex. The Angles, East Anglia, Mercia, which is the great big fat bit in the middle, and Northumbria, and the Jutes, Kent, and the Isle of Wight. Their leaders, Bede reports, are said to have been two brothers, Hengist and Horsa. Of these, Horsa was later killed by the Britons in battle, and has a monument under his name in the eastern parts of Kent up to this day. Bede was from Jarrow, so perhaps I should have done that in the northern accent, but I'm not going to do that. Bede later also adds that Hengist was the ancestor of the kings of Kent. And that is it. That is all that Bede reports about these brothers and their association with Kent. And it should be noted that even he was hesitant about accepting their historicity. He says their leaders were said to have been these brothers, not simply were. Writing, as he was nearly 300 years after these events took place, Bede was right not to commit himself. But later historians, less cautious about handling their sources, would peddle a great deal of legend about these brothers, turning Bede's rather Spartan biography into a rollicking epic full of betrayal, mass murder, and lots of very morally questionable sex. <laughs> we might even get onto some of it later. Modern historians, archaeologists, and most of all anthropologists have also had a lot of fun with these brothers, but they have returned to Bede's scepticism 
Hengist and Horsa are not names. They are concrete nouns. Hengist means stallion, and Horsa means mare, though I should point out that the more familiar form Horsa is actually how the name appears in Latin sources. In vernacular sources, his name is normally given just as horse, which is masculine and means exactly what it sounds like. In fact, Hengst is still the modern German word for stallion, which will be important later, so keep that in mind. Hengist and Horsa resemble a recurring motif in Indo-European mythology, that of twin brothers who are associated with horses. This motif also appears in the Ashvins of Hindu mythology, in the Ashvienii of Lithuanian mythology, and in Castor and Pollux of Greek mythology. Even the famous Romulus and Remus of Latin legend, of Roman legend, though not associated with horses, are another example of founding brothers. This motif is also known to have prevailed among the ancient Germans. The 3rd century BC Greek historian Timaeus, for example, said that the Germans were particularly devoted to Castor and Pollux. They probably didn't call them Castor and Pollux, but this is probably a reference to some Germanic equivalent of the divine horseman Typos. Tacitus also attested to the existence of this cult 400 years later. There is other evidence for a religious devotion to the horse amongst Germanic peoples. Tacitus recorded that the Germans kept white horses in their sacred groves to use in divinatory practices, horses that people were forbidden to ride. Similarly, Bede also reports that the priests of the Anglian religion were forbidden to ride stallions. Law codes from both Germany and Anglo-Saxon England after the conversion to Christianity forbid the ritual docking, mutilating and blinding of horses. Several Old Norse sagas describe the custom of erecting a pole with a horse's head at the top, which was believed to curse the person against whom it was turned. Hmm. The Indo-European horse cult also seems to have had regal connotations. Coronation rituals involving horses are recorded in Indian, Roman, Irish and Scandinavian tradition. Hengist is not even the only Anglo-Saxon king to be equated with horses. His contemporary in the genealogy of the kings of Mercia was named Eomaya, whose name in Old English means simply famous horse. All of this suggests that the pre-Christian inhabitants of Kent regarded horses as sacred animals. Hengist and Horsa, if they existed, might have been named in honour of this cult, or they might have been gods themselves, the legend about them as hero historic heroes being some vague memory of the cult after the Kentish people had converted to Christianity. It is therefore deliciously tempting to assume that a symbol in the form of a horse was used throughout the Kingdom of Kent, perhaps as decoration to buildings or as a standard in battle. This temptation must be resisted. There is no evidence whatsoever for such a tradition. It is only an assumption, and there is no more reason to assume it of the people of Kent than of the people of Wessex or Essex or East Anglia or Mercia or any of the other Anglo-Saxon peoples amongst whom the horse would have been equally sacred. What little evidence there is for this assumption not only does not support it, but actually contradicts it. No source describes the Kentish battle standard, but the West Saxon battle standard is well known to have been not a horse, but a dragon, 
as was the battle standard of the continental Saxons. This standard is depicted on the Bayeux Tapestry, being born in front of a visually impaired King Harold. According to Bede, the kings of Northumbria and possibly also East Anglia had a standard of a plume of feathers born before them. Finally, we have to remember that any Kentish horse totem would have been regarded not as a regional or national symbol, but as a religious one. And as such, it would have become vulnerable after the Kentish people converted to Christianity under King Ethelbert, and it certainly would not have survived the reign of his grandson, Erkenbert, who reigned from 640 to 64, and who ordered that all pagan idols in his kingdom be destroyed. I have hitherto used the term symbol because the form in which the white horse is now most familiar to us as a coat of arms would be anachronistic until the late Middle Ages. Heraldry, that is to say the consistent use of designs on shields peculiar to a particular person, developed from the 12th century, when knights in jousts used such decoration to distinguish one another. The shield, I ought to warn you, is technically called an escutcheon, while the term crest, despite its colloquial misuse as a term for a coat of arms, actually refers to the bit that sits perched on the top of the full achievement. This was originally a model that would be fastened onto the knight's helmet and had functioned as a shorthand identification. Heralds, who acted as umpires and announcers at jousts, assumed the function of keeping the system regular. They documented the designs that were in use, approved new ones and prevented repetition. They did not, however, stop at assigning coats of arms to the living. They killed their time by assigning coats of arms to the dead as well, designing fantasy escutcheons for rulers who had lived long before heraldry had developed. The result is an embarrassment of riches of symbols for the kings of Kent that were never used in real life. The earliest escutcheon attributed to any Kentish king is that attributed to King Ethelbert in a heraldic manuscript of circa 1398. And here it is. The escutcheon is blazoned or on a roundel azure, a lion passant argent. That is to say, yellow escutcheon, blue disc, white lion prowling happily along. I am at a loss to give any really convincing explanation for why this should have been thought an appropriate escutcheon for the King of Kent, and I can only offer a highly tentative hypothesis. Similar arms depicting a lion on a roundel are attributed in other manuscripts to the Sultan of Babylon, a non-existent generic pagan ruler. So maybe this was thought to be generic pagan arms that might be attributed to the first Christian English king as imagined earlier in his life. Or maybe not, I don't know, that's the best I can do. Similar uncertainty attests a second design of arms attributed to King Ethelbert in a role datable to 1413. And this isn't it. This is a later copy. I haven't been able to see the original, but this is what it shows. Red escutcheon, three yellow discs, and in each a white lion, dragon, and a king with a silly looking moustache enthroned majestically. Similar arms are attributed to Ethelbert in other manuscripts going into the 16th century. Again, I cannot 
confidently explain why these were considered appropriate symbols for Ethelbert, but I do know that in 1530, a heraldic visitation of Kent reported this design as the coat of arms of St. Augustine's Abbey in Canterbury, which Ethelbert founded. Now, in heraldic usage, an organisation normally assumes the coat of arms of its founder. So perhaps the Abbey adopted this because they were believed to have been Ethelbert's arms, except that they weren't Ethelbert's arms. He didn't have any arms. Well, he had arms, but he didn't have a coat of arms. Furthermore, the period in which these arms were designed for Ethelbert, late 14th, early 15th century, was also the period when abbeys started getting coats of arms. So maybe, maybe, this design was actually originally invented for the abbey and then backdated to Ethelbert in order to provide a consistent heraldic tradition. But why the abbey should have had this, I don't know. I'm going to have to work on that. I'll call you back. One of the most interesting and yet also bewildering of heraldic manuscripts is the so-called Kings of Britain roll. I say so-called because it is not a roll but a book. The book dates in its current form to circa 1580, but appears to be based on the lost manuscript of Henry VI's reign. The scribe appears to have tried to list the arms attributed to every ruler of any part of Britain, including Roman emperors and legendary rulers. But he missed a lot of them out. As a result, many designs are needlessly repeated, and yet other kings whom we might expect to see are not there at all. His chronology is scrambled by the fact that many of these kings ruled simultaneously, so it's impossible to present them in a consistent sequence. Compounding this confusion, the names of many of his kings have been rendered into Latin, badly, and many kings of different kingdoms had the same name, so it's unclear to which historic king these arms are being assigned. Several arms can arguably be identified as Kentish kings, but I do not have time to go through all of them. Instead, let us focus on those escutcheons that are attributed to a K. Hengist Panim, King Hengist the Pagan. Now, even though there was only ever one king named Hengist in the whole annals of England, never mind Kent, the Kings of Britain role, for some strange reason, has three, though two of them are almost identical. This is one of them. Upper half, white lion on a red field, lower half, three white motlets, that's sparrows with no legs, on a blue diagonal line on a white field. The second Ingist arms is identical to this, except the lion is wearing a crown. Lucky lion. The third coat of arms attributed to Ingist in the roll is this one. Two halves with an indented border between them. On the left side, from our point of view, this is called ermine. It's white with these little black fuzzy bits. And on the other side, sable or black. Again, I have no idea why this was considered appropriate for Hengist. Now, the fact that three coats of arms are attributed to one king in the same manuscript supports my view that the Kings of Britain role is a thoughtless amalgam of several sources by an uncritical and unselective copyist. I cannot account for why these arms were imagined to be suitable for Hengist, but the important point for us is that none of these three arms of Hengist and none of the other arms in the manuscript has a white horse on it. 
Now, a particularly interesting group of arms is attributed to the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms in a heraldic manuscript datable to between 1456 and 1471, latter half of the reign of Henry VI. This assigned arms to the kings of Kent, Essex, Sussex, Norfolk, presumably meaning East Anglia, and Mercia. These are the earliest arms to be attributed to the kings of Kent as such, rather than to individual named Kentish kings, and they are something of a surprise. Here they are. They are blazoned jewels, red, three siaxes, argent, white, with handles or gold. The siax was a kind of one-edged sword and was the preferred weapon of the Saxons. Allegedly, that's where they got their name, though that smacks of folk etymology to me. This image nowadays is consistently associated with the county of Essex, and yet this its very first appearance, assigned it to Kent. Now, I believe we can explain this by the tradition of choosing arms that allude to a particular event in the life of the bearer. As I told you earlier, the earliest source for Hengist, Bede's ecclesiastical history, gives scant information about him. But his biography was considerably padded by legend, which appears for the first time in the Historia Britonum, a heady gallimorphy of botched history and undisguised folklore compiled in the early 9th century from multiple earlier sources. This would provide a template for Geoffrey of Monmouth's much better known pseudo-historical romp. According to this legend, Hengist and Horsa sealed their alliance with the Britons by marrying off Hengist's daughter, Rowena, to the British king Vortigern, who had made only a fleeting appearance in Bede. This marriage did not cool Vortigern's lust for his own daughter, of whom he begot a son slash grandson. There is the morally questionable sex, I promised you. <laughs> Distracted by his two paramours and renounced by the Britons for his sins, Vortigern turned a blind eye to the encroachments of the Saxons, who were conquering their way through their notional employer's territory. Hengist eventually offered to make a treaty with the Britons, and Vortigern agreed to meet him for a conference. During the feast, they never did business on an empty stomach, the Saxons deliberately mingled among the Britons. But suddenly Hengist cried out, Nimed ora sexes! meaning seize your sexes. Whereas the Britons had come to the conference unarmed, trusting people. Each Saxon had a siax hidden about his person, which he now produced to slay the Briton nearest him. Sorry, you just happened to be nearest me. <laughs> to slay the Briton nearest him. Vortigern himself was spared, on condition that he ceded to the Saxons the territory that would become Essex, Middlesex and Sussex. This massacre was the first to go down in history under that much recycled name, the Knight of the Long Knives. And it may be the reason why a 15th century herald imagined that three long knives would be an appropriate escutcheon for Hengist's dynasty. We must remind ourselves that none of these coats of arms would have been borne by the kings of Kent in reality. Their value as historical evidence is that the very fact that heralds had to invent a variety of arms for the Kentish kings proves that the white horse was not yet being used as a symbol of the county in the 14th to 16th centuries. That is not, however, to say that no one was using it. Someone was using it 
in the very country from which Hengist and Horsa had come, Germany. In order for you to understand what comes next, I must say a few words about the Saxons. Although a Germanic-speaking tribe, their precise place of origin is unknown. At the time of their invasion of Britain in the 5th century, the Saxons were living on the banks of the River Elbe, in what are now the German states of Schleswig-Holstein and Lower Saxony. Whereas in Britain the Saxons conquered the Welsh, in Germany it was the Saxons themselves who were conquered by the Franks, under whom Saxony became a duchy, its duke having a vote in the election of the Holy Roman Emperor. In 1142, the duchy became the possession of Duke Henry the Lion, a scion of the House of Welf, a family of originally Italian stock. In 1180, however, Henry fell out with his cousin and emperor, Frederick Barbarossa, who confiscated the duchy and broke it up into multiple smaller territories. Two of these, the duchies of Saxe-Lauenburg and Saxe-Wittenberg, were given to the House of Ascania, while the Welfs, retained their lands in the towns of Brunswick and Lüneburg, which were created into a new duchy in 1235. As was common among German principalities, the duchy of Brunswick and Lüneburg was frequently divided among different branches of the Welf dynasty, each branch getting a chunk of the lands, but all sharing the title Duke of Brunswick and Lüneburg, which makes things really confusing. These lines are distinguished by referring to them by the town or castle where the co-duke in question kept his principal residence. It is in the context of these competing noble families that the white horse first appears as a regional symbol. I must remind you that Bede never specified Hengist and Horse's nationality. But so overwhelming was the tendency of Latin writers to use Saxones as an umbrella term for all the Germanic invaders of Britain, that Hengist and Horsa, the supposed leaders of that invasion, came to be regarded as Saxons, and as such were commemorated as heroic national figures among the people in Germany who thought of themselves as the latter-day Saxons. It is common to see in parts of Lower Saxony and Schleswig-Holstein horsehead-shaped gables on farmhouses, which were known as Hengist und Horse, as recently as 1875. It cannot be proven that this name dates back to pre-Christian times, and it may just be a conscious piece of antiquarianism. But similar gables are also seen in Lithuania, where they are called the Ashvieniai, the twin horsemen who drove the chariot of the sun. So the style at least may be of great antiquity. At the very least, the name proves that the legend of Hengist and Horsa was known in their alleged homeland. This is substantiated by a 15th century English manuscript that includes Hengist and Horsa in a list of Germanic heroes said to have gained fame in Italy, Gaul, Britain and Germany. From as early as the 12th century, images of horses appeared on the seals of the old Saxon nobility. But images of other beasts appeared as well, and horses appear on seals in other areas. So it's impossible to say whether these early seals are evidence of a horse symbol or are just an aesthetic choice. The first family to use the horse as a symbol consistently and to apply a particular meaning to it were our old friends, the House of Welf. The earliest known example is in a charter of Otto, Duke of Brunswick and Lüneburg in the Grubenhagen line, 
issued on the 11th of May, 1356. I must apologise for the poor quality of this image. This is a scan of a photocopy. The seal depicts his coat of arms, his escutcheon of two lions, which he inherited from his ancestor, King Henry II of England, which is why it looks so familiar to us. Supporters, lion and a dragon, a helm, and at the top, as the crest. Crest is a bit on the top, not the whole thing. A bit on the top is a horse, passant. That is to say, with its right forehoof off the ground, as though merrily trotting along. After this, examples multiply of Welf family seals that show a trotting horse. Another seal in 1369 depicts the horse salient, that is to say, rearing up with both its hind legs on the ground. Seals, of course, are monochrome, but in 1380 the image appears in a heraldic manuscript, the Wappenbuch von den Ersten, in the form in which we are familiar with it. Jules, a horse passant argent. Red escutcheon, white horse rearing up. Beside this is a label saying, Die Alde Wappen van Brunswick. It's not the old arms of Brunswick. The Vell family has been using it for maybe as little as 30 years by this stage, and yet it was believed to be old. Why? A symbol means what anyone thinks it means. So what did people think the white horse meant? In between the years 1406 and 1412, a German historian called Gobelinus Persona, literally the Reverend Goblin, wrote a book called Cosmidromius, A History of the Universe. Its scope may have been a little more limited than that, but he did include an explanation for why the Dukes of Brunswick used the white horse as their coat of arms. Now the leaders of that army who set out from Saxony to Britain, I can do a German accent, from Saxony to Britain were the sons of the Duke of Angra, or Enger, one of whom, as Bede says, was called Hengist, and the other Hossa, the count of whose names in the Falgertang signifies a royal horse of outstanding strength and beauty, which princes mainly use in jousts and tournaments. And it is perhaps for that reason that the arms of certain dukes of Saxony are a white horse, for they have received such arms from their progenitors since ancient times. Hengst, I must remind you, is the German word for stallion. So Gobelinus and his countrymen would have seen that and thought of Hengist in a way that we, perhaps ironically, seeing that we're in Kent, don't. Opinion differs on why the Welfs adopted this symbol of Hengist, and I do not have time to run through all of the possibilities with you. Some scholars see it as a kind of protest against the Welf family's loss of the Duchy of Saxony. Others see it simply as a reference to the importance of horse breeding as a local industry. There are many other hypotheses, and I am undecided which I believe. The important point for us is that the white horse is not in origin a Kentish symbol. It is a German symbol. It was interpreted as a symbol of Hengist from at least the beginning of the 15th century and may have been designed with that meaning in mind, but that that history is false is proven, as we have seen, by the fact that Hengist's people themselves, the men of Kent, were completely unaware of it. Until 1605. In that year, there was published 
The restitution of decayed intelligence in antiquities concerning the most noble and renowned English nation by Richard Verstigan. Richard Rowlands, as he was born, was an interesting character. He was born in London, circa 1549, the grandson of a Dutch immigrant. He converted to Roman Catholicism at Oxford, as sometimes happens, and left England for Antwerp, where he conducted antiquarian research. The Restitution, a history of Anglo-Saxon England, was the fruit of his labours. It features an illustration depicting Hengist and Horser in achingly period dress, landing at Ebbsfleet. Notice there is a standard bearer marching behind them, carrying a banner with a horse salient on it. This illustration is accompanied by an explanation, saying, Hengistus was doubtless a prince of the chiefest blood and nobility of Saxony, and by birth of Angria in Westphalia, his weapon or arms being a leaping white horse, or hengst, in a red field, which was the ancient arms of Saxony, that the chief princes and dukes have there long since for many ages together borne. This was not the first time that the link between Hengist and the White Horse was put into writing, that was Gobelinus, but it was the first time that that link was brought to the attention of an English audience. Incidentally, elsewhere in his book, Verstigen discusses the Siax, which I suppose is what they're carrying there, and he says, of this kind of hand Siax, Erkenwinner, king of the East Saxons, did bear for his arms three argent in a field jules. In other words, Verstigen, having decided that the kings of Kent bore the white horse as their coat of arms and not the three Siaxes, has reassigned the three Siaxes' coat of arms to Essex. Verstigen's work was used as a source by the historian and mapmaker John Speed. In 1611, Speed published a two-volume set, The Theatre of the Empire of Great Britain and an Accompanying History. The first volume contains county-by-county county maps of England, but it also included a map of the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, liberally decorated with their attributed arms. Over here in this corner, sorry, this isn't a very great image, but in this corner, trust me, is Hengist, wearing Roman armour for some weird reason, holding his escutcheon with, just underneath it, the white horse on the red field. Over on this side, we see St Augustine preaching to Ethelbert, now with the white horse on a blue background for some strange reason, and we see it on a blue background again down there on the map. I don't know why he sometimes uses a blue background rather than a red. He just does, for some weird reason. Nevertheless, the symbol remained of purely antiquarian interest throughout the 17th century. In that period, it only appears in history books, never in any truly contemporary context. It must be emphasised that the white horse was perceived as the coat of arms of the kings of Kent, and as such, obsolete, not a symbol of the modern county. For the next part of the story, we must return to Germany and our chums, the Welfs. By the end of the 17th century, most of the Welfs' much particularised lands had trickled back into the possession of a single line who made their capital in the town of Hanover. The Welfs' coat of arms still included, amongst other devices, the White Horse. In 1692, Duke Ernest Augustus was created an elector of the Holy Roman Empire, and in 1700 his wife, Sophia of the Palatinate, 
a granddaughter of King James VI and I, was designated heiress presumptive to the English throne by the Act of Settlement. Sadly, Sophia missed out on becoming Queen of Great Britain by predeceasing her second cousin once removed Queen Anne by two months. So that in 1714, it was her and Ernest's son, Georg Ludwig, Duke of Brunswick and Lüneburg, Prince Elector and Arch Banner Bearer of the Holy Roman Empire of the German nation, who became King George I of Great Britain, France and Ireland. Upon his accession, the arms of the electorate were combined with the British royal arms. So that the white horse appeared, tucked down there in the corner. Shortly after this, the White Horse starts to appear as a symbol of the modern county of Kent. The earliest example of which I'm aware is in the newspaper, the Kentish Post, which began publication in 1717. Its masthead initially depicted a floral arrangement, but in 1723 this was replaced with a vista of Canterbury, with the arms of the city on the right-hand side of the page and the White Horse on the left. Now, until recently, the existing collection of the Kentish Post stopped in 1722 and picked up again in 1726. And the example from 1726 was the earliest example of which I was aware until a few nights ago, while I was preparing this talk, I googled the Kentish Post and found this from 1723. But in my defence, this was only discovered last year by archivists going through an uncatalogued collection at Scotney Castle. So this is red-hot research, this stuff. Brand new. Until now, the White Horse had been associated with Kent only in the context of its ancient kings, never as a symbol of the modern county, until nine years after the accession of George I. I may be reading too much into the timing of this, but I cannot help be struck by the coincidence that after a hundred years in which the White Horse gathered dust on antiquarians' bookshelves, it now appears in a local newspaper expected to be recognised as an appropriate symbol of the modern county. Was this shift motivated by flattery? Was it motivated by pride? Was it motivated by Protestantism? They're not mutually exclusive. The White Horse gradually rose in popularity over the course of the 18th century. From 1751, it started to appear on the cap badges, belt buckles and standards of Kentish militia and regiments, such as on this mitre cap of the East Kent militia. In 1794, four different tradesmen issued tokens that depicted the horse on the obverse. This example was payable at Goudhurst, I believe. In 1802, the Kent Fire Insurance Company was formed and adopted as their badge the White Horse with the motto in Wicta, and it is pronounced in Wicta, written underneath. This is the earliest occasion when the symbol and the motto, which has an entirely independent history that I do not have time to explain, appeared together. This design appeared on the company's policies, on the lintel of its offices in Maidstone and Canterbury, on firemen's uniforms and on fire marks that were displayed on the walls of houses that the company insured. There are still a few in existence. For example, there's one on a house on Staplehurst High Street. If you ever drive through Staplehurst regularly, you can see it. 
I don't have an image to put on the screen, but I did manage to find an example of one of their fire policies, which is over there on the desk, so you can have a look at it later. In the 19th century, this trickle of examples becomes a flood. The white horse was used as, for example, a school badge and appeared as such on uniforms. Kent College in Canterbury, founded in 1885, uses the white horse on a red background, while Kent College Pembury, founded in 1886, uses the blue background, as does Oakwood Park. <coughs> the white horse appeared on the cover of books about the county, most obviously, until recently, on the cover of Archaeologia Cantiana, which began publication in 1858. In the same year, the White Horse also, for the first time, achieved official recognition when the College of Arms conferred an, an official escutcheon on the town of Margate that has the White Horse at the bottom. Notice this is one of the earliest occasions, though you can also see it on the uh, fire policy, in which the horse is not depicted salient, that is to say with both hind legs on the ground, but is depicted foreseen, with only one leg still on the ground. This has now become the usual way of depicting the white horse, which is a bit weird because it's very rare in nature. It's very difficult for a horse to put all its weight on one leg. The symbol attained official use in other ways. The county council used the white horse from its inception in 1888, depicting the symbol on its seal, which I'm afraid doesn't come across very well here, displaying it in the meeting chamber and embellishing the pediment of Sessions House with it when that was built in 1913. I advise all of you to have a look at it later, next time you're in that area. The White Horse was even used as a watermark on the council's bespoke paper. It was also during the 19th century that the White Horse appeared in one of its most popular manifestations. The notion of a banner based on the arms of Hengist had been in circulation since Verstegen published his imaginative illustration in 1605. But as the arms entered into popular use in the 18th century, the idea of making a flag out of them resurfaced. Most of the early references to such a flag are literary and romantic. For example, Edward Bulwer-Lytton's 1848 novel Harold, Last of the Saxon Kings, describes the men of Kent going into battle at Hastings under the pale charger, famous banner of Hengist. Ooh. <laughs> it is difficult to tell how literally these references ought to be taken. But once the use of the arms had become established, it was probably only a matter of time before someone made a flag out of them. The first organisation that is known to have done so was Kent County Cricket Club, which was formed in 1870. Precisely when the club started using the flag is unknown, but it was certainly the case by 1896, when it was mentioned by a German commentator, of all things. The second captain of Kent County Cricket Club was George Harris, 4th Baron Harris, who also later became a member of Kent County Council after a singularly inept stint as Governor of Bombay. By 1930, the council's seal had deteriorated, and the council used the opportunity to get a replacement to apply to the College of Arms for the grant of a full achievement, complete with crest, mantling, supporters and motto, which could emblazon the replacement. Lord Harris was appointed chairman of the subcommittee set up to manage the application, though by this point he was extremely old and died before the application was completed. Although the other details of the full achievement provided some scope for disagreement, 
There was never any doubt but that the charge on the escutcheon would be the white horse. And for those of you who are interested, one of the folders I put on the table over there is draft designs that the committee considered but later rejected. They're quite interesting and pretty. There was some consideration given to using a blue background rather than the usual red, but Lord Harris argued in favour of the latter by pointing out that a red background would provide a more effective contrast on a flag in poor weather. As a cricketer, he would have known this from experience. The full achievement was officially granted in 1933. Its proper blazon is arms, shuls, a horse foreseen argent, crest, that's the bit at the top. Issuant from a mural crown proper, three masts rigged, with courses set and topsails furled, proper. Flying from each masthead, a pennon argent charged with a cross jewels. Supporters. On either side, a sea lion gorged with a collar jewels, pendant therefrom an escutcheon, the dexter of the arms of the Sea of Canterbury, and the sinister of the arms of the Sinkports. Motto, Invicta, unconquered. I should remind you that this full design legally belongs to the County Council and may not be used without the Council's permission. The central image of the White Horse, however, is now very firmly established as the symbol and the flag of Kent and its cricket club. It may not be as old as we would like to think, and it may technically be German. <laughs> but it is ours now, and I really cannot imagine Kent without its white horse. Thank you. <laughs>